0: As a transfer student, sometimes it felt like I had two first-gen experiences. As a freshman at Florida International University, I made friends quickly. I bonded with my classmates over the difficulty of classes, navigating campus, and spending late nights in the lounge. I was nervous, but I didn't feel alone. I made friends that knew the campus and gave me advice about picking classes, finding class materials for cheap, and introduced me to even more students that helped me along the way. Restarting at the University of Rhode Island was tough. I felt like everyone knew each other and had their friends. In class, I felt out of the loop about which sections to take, which tutors were the most patient. It was as if there was a campus-wide secret that everyone knew but me. I missed the network I established at my old school, the resources I had through my friends, but I learned not to take my connections for granted.
1: I'm a first-generation
0: college student,
1: which means that I did not have role models to be like, oh, you know, you should, you should look out for this office to go to. They're going to help you and they're going to guide you. I had to be very proactive about finding those resources for myself. But even with that, if you don't know that they're there, you just don't
0: know. That was Denise Wernarostro. You probably heard her first on another Hidden Curriculum episode, Adulting. Denise is a postdoc at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. She knows what it's like to feel left out of the loop. So
2: It's like, kind of like word of mouth, like things that I didn't know about, but it's also like,
1: like it wasn't advertised by. It almost felt like a secret club.
0: Out of the Science Education Society Lab at the University of Rhode Island, this is Hidden Curriculum. Today's episode is all about resources, access, and the not-so-obvious rules and networks that govern them. Today on The Hidden Curriculum, we're breaking down the hidden curriculum. So you miss 100% of the chances you don't take. But what about the chances you don't know about? This is where our conversation about resource and opportunity begins, at the border of access and information. Along the way, there's barriers. More or less for everyone. More for some, less for others. As we journey, we'll need to leverage every resource we have. Experience, for sure. Finances, if we have them. But there's one resource that we don't talk about in depth nearly enough, our network connections, and our ability to tap into them, aka social capital.
3: Um, So there's a lot of different definitions out there for social capital. Uh, The the most cited one is from um, Pierre Bourdieu, um, a, a French researcher who talked about social capital as the information and support and resources that we gain from our relationships, and he specifically used the term capital because the idea was the social capital can translate into economic capital, it can translate into money and opportunities and jobs and internships. Um, so, we
0: know that. That was Sarah Schwartz. She's a clinical psychology professor at Suffolk University. Her work is all about helping first-generation college students get to the resources they need to be successful on campus. This includes answering day-to-day questions, helping to facilitate positive mentoring relationships, and creating interventions that help students help themselves. I called Sarah up to shed some light on this idea of social capital and its importance to first-gen students.
3: So we know that that these relationships and connections that we have. Um, make a huge difference in, um, one, in, you know, making it in college, two, in who gets jobs after college, Um, referrals, recommendations, um, are, are, there's some stats out there that like 70% of jobs people get through their connections. So this, this can make a very, very significant difference in people's lives. Um, One thing I do just want to mention, student who uh, was first in his family to go to college um, and had had some bumps along the road um, and one semester he was um, I think a junior at the time he um, emailed me during exam period and basically said I just found out that I failed this class that I thought I was going to pass and I needed for graduation and I just wanted to let you know that I d- that I'm, I'm leaving college and I'm done. And so, that story could have easily gone in the direction of he's done with college. Um, but because he was able to reach out to me and let him let me know that, I said, well, let's, let's meet and let's chat about this. And then through that, I was able to provide both the emotional support to kind of um, Get him back on his feet, then, uh, as well as then, really use um, use my connections to make college or to help him write his path. So I was able to reach out to the professor who was teaching the class and say, you know, here we have a special case. He really needs this class to graduate. He's, you know, everything's on the line. Um, Can you make an exception to get him into this class? And then he was able to get into that class. Then I was able to connect him with the tutoring resources and um, additional supports that that he needed related to the kind of mental health side of things and and kind of pull all of these different strings, pull together the support system um, and I'm happy to say that he graduated this year Um, so but I think that that's just one example where um, again you can imagine that if he if that plenty of students would have just quietly you know left without telling anyone um, or if he had gone and talked to you know, um, maybe a family member who didn't have that same knowledge of how the college system worked and said, you know, I failed a class, they would think, oh, I guess you're right, college isn't working for you. He was able to access this whole world of, um, culture, of, of social capital and a term that, that's often used, institutional agents. So I served the role as an institutional agent who was then able to connect him to other supports that then allowed him to ultimately be successful.
0: That term Sarah just used, institutional agent, typically refers to those faculty and staff members that you really know are in your corner. People who you know believe in you and really want the best for you. Institutional agents help us by extending their social capital to us. It can be as simple as an introduction through email, writing a reference, or even just nudging us to keep trying. Sometimes institutional agents see potential in us that we might not even see in ourselves.
1: My name is Dr. Monica Feliu-Mujer. I am a neurobiologist by training. I did my PhD in neurobiology, but now I am a science communicator and a storyteller. I am a first-generation PhD student. I'm the first person in my family to complete a PhD and to actually attend an Ivy League institution. So I'm gonna tell you a story of how I actually discovered that I could do research. In my first year, uh, I had this biology professor and she was the first scientist I ever met. Her name was Dr. Agnes Martinez-Laos. I will never forget her name. And I think she was the first person who saw the potential that I could be a scientist. I remember in my biology labs, in class, she would push me really hard at the at the point that I would get annoyed at her, and I'm like, "Let go, like just get off my back." Like she would be really picky about my techniques when I was doing things, and I was like, "Why are you doing this?" And as time went by, and like I I you know I finished my first year, uh, she became my mentor, and I remember I was finishing actually my second year, and she asked me, "What are you gonna do?" the next summer after you're finished with your second year and I was like, mm, I don't know. She handed me a paper application for a summer research program at a medical school that was actually five minutes from my campus. And she, as she handed me this application, she told me, try research and I found multiple ways to argue with her that I was not gonna do that because I wanted to study medicine because I was gonna be a psychiatrist and you know like this thing research was not for me and she told me the way she convinced me to try was by saying that it would help me get into medical school and so I I gave it a try I applied for this program I was accepted and after the first month of being in this like two and a half month summer research program I was like oh my god this is what I want to do. I having the opportunity to discover something that no one had ever seen blew my mind. I, I never thought somebody like me could have that opportunity and I learned that and i had the chance to discover that because of her because she was persistent in in you know encouraging me that i should really try research and i should really apply to this and later on i realized it was because she really saw potential in me that i didn't see at the time
0: mentors like monica's are super important especially for students from underrepresented backgrounds for a lot of us there's many more barriers to success, and they're not always so obvious. Mentors who have been there, seen that, have valuable insight on how to overcome.
3: I think there's there's a number of things going on. So, one is um, is you know as we talked about that um, if colleges are built around a certain way of interacting um, that's based on um, you know middle upper class um, college educated standards that then there's that extra hoop to jump through of needing to learn to interact in that way to access certain forms of social capital. Um, and first-generation college students may have less knowledge of what people often call the hidden curriculum of how to navigate college. Um, so, so there's this kind of knowledge piece. Um, first-generation college students may also be experiencing the imposter syndrome stereotype threat. So the idea that other people around them don't think they belong in college, so then they may be less likely to ask for help or call attention to themselves, which is really what you need to do to build social capital, putting yourself out there, making yourself vulnerable um, and reaching out. And there, there also may be very real reasons to be wary of that um, because on the systems level, we know that race and class, um, class-based bias and structural inequality all operate within universities the same way they operate within the rest of society, um, and studies have shown that professors and employers are less likely to respond to identical emails based on um, based on kind of race and class signals that can that researchers have put in the name or in the CV, and um, so we know that that there also are. These structural barriers to being able to access social capital even if the even if the first generation college students are now doing everything quote unquote right. Because I think all too often their first generation college students can have the sense that this is something that I should be ashamed of or I need to hide, and my goal should be to as much as possible look like and model myself after a continuing generation college student so that nobody knows that I'm first in my family to go to college. Um, and not only um, does that place kind of an unnecessary burden on students and can lead to shame in one's own identity and which is um, harmful in many ways. Um...
0: We talked about this idea of mental bandwidth on the show before. It's the amount of space you have in your brain to do important things like studying, doing well in class, etc. All these extra hoops we have to go through as first-gen students to fit in, to feel like we belong, can tax our mental bandwidth. I would talk
1: to my peers, and they would talk about, you know, I went to study abroad, and I did all of this travel, and um, you know, they had access to all of these opportunities that I was like, I didn't even know that existed. Um, and you know my family was it was we i wouldn't say we were poor but we didn't have a ton of resources so traveling to another country was something that was out of our reach um, and so that was one thing and then the other was in terms of exposure to like educational opportunities like or even concepts there were certain concepts that i really and when i started my graduate school cl- classes i really felt like oh i should have known this and i i never even took this class like i was i was doing a phd in neurobiology and you know other than what you know learning what a neuron is and maybe learning a little bit about the nervous system and physiology and anatomy class i never took a neuroscience class um, And so there were there were those instances that i realized like how much how many opportunities i had been missing um and you know of course like my parents couldn't guide me through the process of of doing a phd because they they didn't know they didn't understand
0: Um, so we could list all of the barriers first gen students face for days but most times a lack of awareness to opportunities is pretty standard That's why social capital is so important. Opportunities flow through networks of people who have their own networks that can lead to jobs, internships, etc. There's a constant flow of need, whether it's for a lab tech or a full time professor. Social capital helps us to be in the right place at the right time to take advantage of opportunities when they come. Not everyone can afford to study abroad or work for free to gain experience not everyone had a college prep course at their high school or an early mentor to encourage them to pursue a career that they're passionate about sometimes just getting your foot in the door is the greatest challenge you can change your entire life with the right conversation but finding the right person to talk to and oddly enough sometimes how to talk is a challenge all its own
3: yeah and i think that that connects to um, the idea of of code switching um and The idea that, that, yeah, that often, you know, you're speaking different languages um, and, again, language using broadly, um, and you're interacting in different ways, and the expectations of um, who you are and how you interact can be entirely different. Um, Quick
0: clarification. If you haven't heard the term code switching before, you've probably heard it in action or done it yourself. I'm probably doing it right now. See, we code switch by changing the way we talk to match a social situation. We use different word choice, inflection, and tone of voice, often to speak in a way that's not natural to us, but viewed as more professional. For instance, the way you speak with the professor versus the way you speak with your friends, and this is where the line gets blurry. In a perfect world, we would need to code switch, but in the college landscape today, Code switching, especially for students from underrepresented backgrounds, is a tool and a task. I
3: think what's important about the code switching piece is that it doesn't, ideally, it means you don't need to become a different person and lose who you are, that you can be a bicultural person, someone who can hold on to your ways of interacting um, in your home community. And also learn these other ways of interacting and being able to go back and forth between between these different ways, which um, which takes a lot of work and a lot of energy. Um, and so we also want to consider, you know, not only are they needing to learn all the things that all students need to learn in college, but also this additional output of energy, which which is huge. I mean, and it's a, it's a huge strength to be able to do that code switching, but it takes a lot.
0: So a major barrier to gaining experience in using social capital is feeling like you belong and can navigate different groups and scenarios. It's not always very intuitive if you come from a community where most people look like you or speak like you and you enter college and suddenly everybody looks and speaks and moves in a way that's totally different from what you know. So you made it through senior year of high school. Everyone is so proud that you're gonna be the first in your family to go to college. Opening your acceptance letter was a cathartic experience. You did it, you're going to college, you made it. I, food, so I was like, yo, this is crazy, what? So for the first two years, I was just kind of chilling. I was like, all right, I made it. I didn't really think there was much more than that, but um, it got to a point junior year where I was like, well, I need to you know, beef up my portfolio or whatever, like make myself an actual candidate for what I wanna do next. That was Ali Younis. At the time of our interview, he was a senior at the University of Central Florida. His long-term goal is to earn a PhD in chemistry. Ali said that when he first arrived at college, he felt like all his work paid off, like he made it. For Janaya Gomez, now a junior at the University of Rhode Island, she felt like her work had just begun. I spoke to Janaya and Ali both about their experiences getting involved in scientific research. Here's their stories.
2: Um, well, I listened to this podcast called um, College Info Geek <laughs> and, like, tons of, it's like, and they have a podcast on like a website component and so I like went through all that and they're like oh get involved like as soon as possible like it's good to get like as many opportunities as you can especially since I plan to graduate in three years I wanted to like get in as much experience as I can so I could be able to get jobs and like keep up with people who had four years of experience and yeah I was just like okay well it's just it took me like a month actually like work up the courage to actually send out the email and I was like okay should I do it should I not I'm just a freshman I don't know if they'll like want me or not but then I just went for it I guess and it worked out
3: but anyways the moment when I realized I should be doing more
0: was actually um I met this one kid named Juan in one of my like uh, labs I think it was like an analytical chemistry lab and he was talking to me about a bunch of research that he was doing and I was like, yeah, that's
1: pretty cool. So I asked him if he needed help with research or whatever and he was like, yeah,
0: sure. So he talked to his PI and I got in um, with him in the lab and I was like, okay, I didn't know you could do this. And then I actually. Um,
2: I went on the URI cooperative extension page and I was just like tearing it apart, like looking for things, seeing like what kind of opportunities they had on campus. And then it was like, it was like this random like link i don't even know where it was anymore but it was just like oh contact this lab if you want like interning experience and i was like okay and then the email popped up and i was like hey i'm interested in like working for your lab and she emailed me back in like two minutes she was like okay interview next week and i'm like oh okay <laughs> great so that's how i got that connection
0: Janai and ali are both first-gen college students both stem majors But they got started in research in different ways and at different times from different sources of social capital. They took advantage of different resources. Personally, I didn't get involved in research until my junior year of college. Not until I got a nudge from professors and mentors I grew really close to. What's important is knowing that the path is not always linear and it doesn't have to be. The key isn't to mold yourself into the upper middle class, wealthy poster child for college success you might imagine, but to take advantage of the opportunities, the resources you do have. A program can't do the loads of work needed to solve all of the issues of racial and socioeconomic inequality in the country. We can't promise that your journey will be easy, but we can help you see the value of the people, offices, and opportunities on your campus and in your community right now.
3: There's a lot that students can do. to, to increase their social capital and, um, and take advantage of social capital on campus. And I think um, you know one thing that we were talking about earlier is simply the knowledge that this matters and that this is something that they should be paying attention to and actively cultivating because often just no one tells them that. So, and you may not realize it until you're a senior and suddenly want to ask for a letter of recommendation and realize you don't have anyone to ask. Um, and by then, It's it's not entirely too late, but it's later than you would have wanted to start. Um, So, you know, one, just sharing that knowledge, making this stuff explicit.
0: So here's a quick list of things no one tells you. Number one, talk about social capital, not just as a social term, but as the information that flows through our networks. Talk to trusted professors, your classmates, your parents. Think about who you know and who they know. Have conversations with your advisors and school officials about the lack of communication. Tell them you want to know about more opportunities. Don't be shy. Speak up for yourself and others. For the faculty, staff, and mentors who might be listening, spread the word. Talk about internships and programs you've heard about. Talk about your own experiences and take advantage of campus organizations and social media to encourage students to get meaningful experiences. Number two, find your community. It really does take a village to succeed in college, especially when you feel like you're going through it alone. Do a little research on the organizations, clubs, and affinity groups on your campus. Student groups form because students share interests and concerns. They're a great space to communicate resources, and tons of them exist on campuses. Number three, stand tall in your first-gen truth. Your experiences came with a unique set of challenges. You're resourceful, creative, and hardworking, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. So, how can first generation college students leverage their background to try to you know continue to build? so not yeah. not um, trying to hide their identity, just really embracing the fact that you know they're the the first in their family?
3: Yeah, I think I think that's a really important question um, because I think all too often, Their first-generation college students can have the sense that this is something that I should be ashamed of or I need to hide, and my goal should be to, as much as possible, look like and model myself after a continuing-generation college student so that nobody knows that I'm first in my family to go to college. Um, And... Not only um, does that place kind of an unnecessary burden on students and can lead to shame in one's own identity, and which is um, harmful in many ways, um, but it also um, is less effective. And that actually there's a, a lot of um, great research uh, that, that shows that when students learn to talk about their backgrounds and their identities, um, that, that can again particularly for first generation college students actually lead to um, increases in college success and GPA um, and and in particular I think you know it's it's really important to think about how is my background a strength and yes and all of our backgrounds bring with us um, challenges and strengths but I think particularly for first generation college students in the in the focus on, know i need to learn how to code switch i need to learn how to fit in i need to learn this hidden curriculum that we can lose the fact that i am the first in my family to go to college is a strength that the i needed to you know overcome so many challenges to get here that maybe a continuing generation college student didn't need to and i can bring that capacity to overcome challenges i can bring that capacity to code switch and exist in different cultures and environments, that those are all strengths that make can make me a better student, can make me a better employee, um, and can um, help me be more effective in the world. So I think it's really important um, to make sure that the message that first-generation college students are getting is, yes, there's a lot of new stuff to learn um, in navigating college, and I bring with me a lot of strengths and my background actually is a strength and I can frame, frame that as a strength in um, talking about myself and introducing myself.
0: Hopefully after today's episode you feel a little more confident navigating your own campus. No need to suffer in silence any longer. Now you have the language to explain the hidden curriculum, social capital, and some of the mysterious rules and tidbits that you may have felt like others already knew. Being first-gen is a resource all its own. This story was written and produced by me, Jossie Alexander, with the help of Angelica Merdu. Special shout out to Dr. Sarah Schwartz at Suffolk University, Dr. Monica falou Hare, Ali Yunus, and Janiya Gomez for their stories. The music for this episode was created by Chad Crouch and Monplacer. Hidden Curriculum is a project supported by the Science, Education, and Society Lab at the University of Rhode Island. Be sure to send us your questions, comments, and thoughts at hiddencurriculumpod at gmail.com.